Welcome to the podcast of Trinity Episcopal Church in Vero Beach, Florida. We are glad to have you join us. Our hope is that this sermon will instill you with a profound sense of God's love and that you might receive and reflect His glory to your community. From the first epistle of St. John, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. In the name of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Good morning, brothers and sisters. Uh, Today is the last Sunday of Easter season, and we've been working our way over these past six weeks, actually, uh, looking at a story that's a recurring theme of how God meets people and then changes them, changes their lives for good. You know, Mary, Thomas, Cleopas on the road to Emmaus. I love saying that. And, and you, right, and me, that when Jesus meets us, everyone, he changes us. And so today, we're going to wrap that up and sort of conclude that sermon series by looking at this text from the epistle of John, the first one. It's on page six. You might want to crack it open because we're going to look at it. This, these four verses, which when you read them, kind of sounds rambly. Is that a real word? Kind of sounds rambly and kind of meandering and sort of doesn't make a whole lot of sense. It's, I described it to me when I first read this as sort of like taking, uh, taking words and putting them in like a, in a those, one of those tennis ball shooters, you know, and just kind of shooting words out that you understand the words, but they don't actually make a whole lot of coherent sense. Amen? Did you get that? I, anyway, if you did get that, you're in the right place today because we are going to look at these, oh, these four verses, the first four here, um, from First John, and we're going to do that, and we're going to look at four points today, not just three, but four. Four marks of a person who has met Jesus, of a Christian who's been born again. The four marks of a Christian right here at a First John chapter 5, 1 through 4, is this, that that person loves God, that that person loves God's people, that that person obeys God, and that person has victory. So the four marks of a Christian, which is right here, and I'm going to walk it through, and it's really cool, are simply this. A Christian, a real Christian, loves God, loves the brethren, obeys God, and has victory in life. Those are my four points. You ready? All right. So the first thing, again, look at it in John here if you want. You can read along with me. Um, The first thing a Christian does, and it's a a logical progression of thought here, the first thing a Christian does is that he or she loves God. Now, that might sound obvious to you. Well, duh, of course I love God. But the reason it sounds obvious to you is because you and I are steeped in sort of the leftovers of a 21st century Christian worldview. I mean, even non-church people will say that they love God, or at least they love him in a sort of, you know, friend-at-the-club kind of way. You know, he's, he's handy in a pinch, but nobody will tell you they hate God, right? Few people would. But if you look at this idea of loving God, right? Everyone who believes that Jesus is the, is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves who's been born of him. What does this mean? Well, if you look at, you might say, sure, I love God, but here, I want to challenge you with something, and this is profound and a little well, profound. If you look at the history of human religions across time and across cultures, God or the gods, more likely, weren't something that you loved, but something that you, you feared. I'll give you an example. 
Just last week, there was a, an article in National Geographic. There was a discovery in Peru. Well, it's now Peru. Uh, ancient Peru of an of a ancient ritual burial ground where they found 140 children aged 9 through 12 from all over that part of the empire who had been ritually sacrificed in this compound and, the, the, and along with about 300 llamas and a bunch of other stuff. But it was, a, it was the largest example of child sacrifice that has yet been discovered. It was the largest example of pre Christian savagery, I think the article even said. And you know, we're prone, we're talking about loving God and what's going on here, we're prone to read stories of things like sacrificing to gods and think to ourselves, man, the ancients are just cruel, mean, despicable people, right? But I got news for you. Um, ancient people love their children too. This is where it gets a little, little closer to home than you might think. These ancient people in now Peru, they weren't animals. They were humans, and they loved their children just like you and I love our own. And so while nobody really knows why these children were sacrificed along with all this other stuff, the speculation is that all cultures, listen, listen closely, all cultures take what is most important to them, livestock, which is a source of wealth, Gold, wealth, children, in this case, which is extreme, and they sacrifice these things, listen, to appease the gods. Not because they love the gods, but because they, they fear them. Hear that. Historically speaking, to say that humanity, that God loves us and that we love God, the claim of the church, which is what we are talking about today, that claim is absolutely mind-blowing, astounding, foolish in a lot of ways, and revolutionary. God loving me? It changes everything, friends. And the reason is because these pre-Christian cultures, in fact, every culture, understands God as something which has to be appeased, his wrath to be abated by moral performance, the law, or ritual sacrifice, giving up what's most important to you, your wealth, your family. <laughs> but this is where Christianity turns this and everything else on its head. That Jesus, by his death on the cross in your place and in mine, listen, he actually earns that place for us. This is absolutely critical. It is the defining mark of Christianity against every other world religion that has ever existed, and it's simply this, that God loves us, that God loves you, not because of you, not because of what you do or don't do, not because of the sacrifices that you make, but because Jesus Christ has died on the cross to pay the penalty for you. And listen, 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 make you worthy to stand before him. In other words, this is big. God's love isn't earned, and it isn't universal. It is a gift given, as John says here, by trust in Jesus and his death on the cross to save you. So let me ask you a question. This is a lot more profound than it sounds on the surface. 
do you, do you really believe that God loves you? Of course I do. Well, maybe not, actually. <laughs> do you really believe that God loves you? Of course so. You say, well, hang on. And I'm not, I'm not saying this to challenge your salvation. I'm calling to challenge your thinking and the profundity of what this is saying. Do you say that God loves you? Of course you do. Well, hang on a sec. <laughs> do you worry about stuff? Well, yeah, kind of. Do you fear? Well, sometimes. Do you struggle with self-doubt and insecurity and a need to always prove yourself? Ah, see, maybe, maybe <laughs> you and I aren't all that different from those ancient Peruvians, friends. A big part of you, and certainly God knows a part of me, a big part of you feels that somehow you've got to earn it. You've got to prove yourself. You need to make a name for yourself. You need to prove your value. Remember uh, Wayne and Garth from Wayne's World? We're not worthy. We're not worthy. Remember that? Come on. You remember that? That's actually kind of where we are. We're not worthy. And to say that God loves you, it sounds trite, but it is profound. Do you really believe that? And I would submit to you, the answer is probably not as much as you should. And this is the Christian walk, to begin to really let that soak in, that God actually loves you, not because of you, but because Jesus died to reconcile you, to make you worthy. And this is the key to the whole text for today. It's critical. Because when you finally get your mind around and begin to really let that love of God seep into you, that God's favor, his love for you is a gift that is unmerited and undeserved, it makes you thankful. It makes you grateful. It settles your spirit because you know you no longer have to earn this. And it makes you able, friends, to love others. And this is John's very point. John says here in verse 1, if you look at it, everyone who believes that Jesus Christ has been, has, believes that Jesus is the Christ who's been saved, has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever, whoever has been born of him. Listen, if you trust Jesus, according to John, you have been born again. And we're not going to get into that today. That makes Episcopalians squirm, but it's true. We are born again, and as a consequence, John says, as a consequence, you will be able to, as a diagnostic, love others more deeply. John continues in verse, verse 2, by this, we know, we know, listen, that we love the children of God. Now, let me, let me explain something to you. What is this idea of the children of God? When John is saying that when you are born again, you become a child of God. Does that sound kind of spiritual to you? I am God's child. What does that mean, actually? Well, it's actually, in the, in the English, it's a little bit obscure, but in the Greek, it's very clear. This idea of being God's child, children of God, is two words in Greek. Technotheo. It is a possessive, and it means, ready for this? When you are born again, when you are saved by Jesus, you become a technotheo. You become, quite literally, God's kiddos. <laughs> you become God's kids. You become kiddos. Any, anybody, uh, any parents in the congregation? Anybody? Okay, guess what? Your kids, your children, are your techna. And if you don't have any kids, 
Anybody here have parents? Raise your hand. <laughs> you all have parents. You are their techna. The point is, when you become a child of God, it's not some stupid spiritual idea. It's earthy. It's affectionate. It is a possessive. The, the point I want you to see here is the gospel's claim is outrageous and beautiful. That when you are born again, when you become a Christian, you are God's child, his kiddo. It's awesome imagery and a lot different from ancient Peruvians' con concept and everybody else's concept of who God and who we are. And friends, as his kiddo, John says, you are called to love the others born of God, the other kiddos. Let me give you an example. As his kiddo, as, your, as his child, as his offspring, you are called to love the others in the family. You know, my family, my Rodriguez family, we've got a plaque when you walk in the front door on the wall. It says, uh, families are like fudge, sweet and full of nuts. <laughs> Can I get an amen? <laughs> this is the beauty of the imagery here. Families are, they're funny, you've all got families, they're funny things, you know. Different people with different temperaments and personalities and strengths and weaknesses. But what makes a family a family are relationships, mutual love for each other. And what John is saying, and this is just an awesome image, is that as the church, as God's kiddos, we are called to love other people in the family, other people in the church. You know, I have a younger brother and a younger sister. They're both very different from me, and both of them drive me crazy occasionally. But, you know, I love them very, very deeply. They're my blood. We're family. And friends, what John is saying is that we, when we are born again, when we are saved, we are God's family. We are God's kiddos. I mean, look around here. I don't use the term brother and sister casually, by the way. Look around here. What you see are people who are your brothers and sisters in Christ. I am your spiritual father in Christ. And what binds us together is love. What does that mean? This idea of love in Greek, love is a verb, not a noun. Agape, it's an action word. And love, like faith, actually, are verbs. They are actions. And love is putting the needs of someone else ahead of your own, ahead of yourselves. And John, John is saying if you love God, you will, you will love those around you. You will put the needs of the family of the church ahead of your own. So here's my challenge to you. Ready? Here's my challenge to you. What gifts do you bring to the family? What gifts do you bring to the family? What are the things that you, that, what are the things the Father has given to you for you to serve your brothers and sisters in Christ? Maybe you're good with kids. Great. Go teach Sunday school. Maybe you're good at finances. Great. Come sit on the board, the endowment committee. Maybe you have finances to move the ball forward. Great. Maybe you've got talents that you don't even know yet, but they are beginning to emerge. Great. Use them for the service of the church. You know, I'm gonna, I didn't tell him this, but Paul Legassi, who has read, read the epistle, has been hard at work through the past couple of weeks serving you. You didn't even know this. Serving this church through his, through going through receipts and documentation for all the stuff around the Charles Hinckley situation, which you may know about. He's been a humongous asset to this community, and maybe you didn't even know that. And so today, Paul, 
you get a shout out from me. Thank you for your help. And <laughs> the point is, friends, Christianity is a contact sport. Christianity requires you, God's kiddo, to put your life aside and serve the other kiddos, support your family, to get off the couch and to get into the game, to love, as because God has first loved you. And this leads to point number three. If we obey, John says in verse two, he writes, by this we know that we love the children of God, if we love God and obey his commandments. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't like the word obey. Anybody here like the word obey? No, didn't think so. It sounds, it sounds oppressive. It sounds restrictive. I'm my own man, right? I'm an American. I don't oh, listen to nobody. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Friends, everybody, everybody obeys something. I mean, there's obvious ones, right? Like the police or the IRS or your wife. But we freely obey all sorts of things. We freely obey all sorts of things. I mean, what, what, what do you do to prove yourself? Maybe you like to drive a certain car or like to be seen in certain places or go to a certain club or hang out with certain people. My point is, we all obey something, listen, and we obey what we love. And what John is saying is that when you really get your mind around the concept of you being God's kiddo, and you do what he says and you love, then guess what? You will obey what he says. Why? Because you love him. And you trust that what he tells you is true. And I got news for you. You say, I'm not obeying God. Well, you know what? You will save yourself and those around you a lot of heartache if you take John's words to heart. Why? Because God is your father. And God knows you a heck of a lot better than you know yourself. And he also has that unique advantage that you and I don't have of knowing everything else. So when he tells you, do this or don't do this, for God's sake, listen to him. He knows what he's talking about. He knows everything. And if you get your mind around the fact that he loves you, it sort of flows logically out of that. That obedience to God flows out of a logical understanding that he loves you and he's got your back. So those who, those who are true Christians love God, love others, obey his commandments. And then my final point here, and I'll be brief, is that, that finally that love and that obedience leads us to a life sort of paradoxically, a life of, of victory, a life of victory. Um, I'm going to tell you a little, little, sorry about my own life. I am right now in the midst of uh, working on some shoulder, sh shoulder, I can't say that, shoulder surgery in the next couple of weeks, my rotator cuff, and I'm working with Dr. Wernicke here. Anybody work with Dr. Wernicke? Peter, great guy. Um, I was over at his office last week, and he said, yeah, we're going to have to get you an MRI and probably... Cut it out, cut it out. But anyway, that's not the point. Point is, I was walking out of the, uh, the waiting room there, and there was a group of gigantic uh, football players. Anybody been over, anybody familiar with this whole you call football thing at Dodgertown? Maybe I didn't know it either. In Dodgertown right now, there's a bunch of NFL guys that are in Vero right now, and they're playing on Thursday nights, and you can go on your phone, and you get to call the plays. Uh, call the play football or something. Anyway. These guys are all at Wernicke's office because he's their, he's their uh, orthopedic. And they're all sitting around, these huge guys, literally guys that had to bow down walking through the door. I mean, big. And here's me, a little five foot ten white guy sitting in this room with all these guys out there. Hey, Reverend. I said, hey. I sat down. I said, what are you guys doing here? He 
there's about six or seven of them, and they said, well, we're here to get all patched up. We're all, we're all hurt from playing football, and Wernicke is our physician. And I said, you know the problem, guys, what your problem is? And they said, what's that, Reverend? I said, the problem with y'all is not your injuries. The problem is y'all are a bunch of sissies. <laughs> exactly. I may not be big, but I am fast. And they went, what? And I said, if you played for Joe Paterno, you'd be on the field where you should be. They thought that was hilarious. Anyway, I'm talking with these guys. It was a great conversation and uh, a lot of good banter. I'm talking with them, and I asked one guy, I said, so why do you guys do this? I mean, you're in here getting banged up and knocked around and, you know, all this cortisone shots and the whole thing. And I said to one guy next to me, didn't get his name, I said, why do you do this? And he said, well, he said, man, because I want to be a winner. I want to be the best. I want to prove myself, his exact words. That is the root and the, of athletic competition, right? To win, to be successful, to defeat your opponent, to be victorious. John says, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that he has overcome the world, our faith. That word for overcome, that word for victory is the word nikeo, Nike. And it means to be victorious, to be held in esteem, to win. This is the coolest part of this whole text here. John says, look, if you have been born of God, and you love him and the neighbor around him, and you are obedient, you have victory. And this victory is our faith. And faith here is not an intellectual assent to a truth claim. This faith is a verb. It means to do. I mean, you and I, and that football player from Mississippi, actually, I think he's where he's from, we spend so much time trying to prove ourselves, don't we? <laughs> so much time trying to show that we are people of value and worth and integrity, trying to be loved. Trying so much to win. But don't you see? It's futile. And it's unnecessary. Because Jesus has got you. And all of your achievements, all of my achievements, all the money, all the power, all the prestige, all the plaques, all the awards, all the accolades of the world, even Super Bowl rings, right? In the grand scheme of things, you know what? You know something, friends? Nobody cares. In the grand scheme of things, nobody is going to give a lick that Chris Rodriguez was the rector of Trinity Vero Church 500 years from now. You can't take it with you, and at the end of the day, nobody really cares. But here's the victory. If you are God's kiddo, and you are, if you are a Christian and he loves you, which he does, then your victory is already won. Your victory is already achieved. Stop worrying of trying to always prove yourself. Do the best you can do, but recognize something absolutely crucial, that your victory is not to give glory to yourself. Your victory is to give glorify glory to your Father in heaven. To have a vic that your victory resides not in you, but in the fact that you are God's kiddo. <laughs> Friends, you matter. That football player from Mississippi matters. Not because he's a great athlete, not because he's a superstar, not because he's 15 feet tall. <laughs> Wasn't quite that big, but just about. We matter because we matter to our Father. And that is the victory. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you for Jesus who makes us worthy of your love. Help us, Lord, to love 
you to love others and to do what you ask. Give us the assurance of your victory in this life and, more importantly, in the next. In his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to our Trinity Episcopal Church podcast. To find out more about the work God is doing through Trinity, visit us online at trinityvero.org and follow us on Facebook.